take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. All right, I'm here from uh, with my friend Luke uh, Carroll. Luke, how are you? Not bad. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I, I don't know if you remember, but we uh, briefly crossed paths in university. Oh yeah, I know. I totally remember. Okay, yeah. perfect. <laughs> no um, so I I was tracking your story on Twitter for uh, for about a, a week or two after I saw some uh, mutual friends repost it. But you and your girlfriend Nicole, you were stuck in Peru. Yep, that's right. That's right. Wow. Um, we're going to go through this, like this journey here. Uh, but you know, just wanted to start off, um, when you chose to go, when did you leave? And did you know that, you know, this virus might've been a concern at the time that you left? Um, no. So we left in January. We've been planning this trip for probably about six months before that. Um, and we went to Buenos Aires and at that point, We'd, I think we'd heard, we'd started hearing a bit about coronavirus, but it was really just this distant virus uh, in like the Wuhan province of China. It didn't really seem like uh, a big concern at the time. Um, we kept following it throughout the trip. Um, but honestly, like uh, it looked like a way bigger concern in Canada and North America because South America didn't even get its first case until pretty much March. Um, but yeah, so at the time in, in short at the time, yeah, it really didn't seem like, like a big issue when we first left. Um, it was kind of just coming on the scene. Yeah. So like there was no like official travel warnings or anything. What were there or was it just kind of like you saw it on your, the news? Like, I think it was like every like fourth story. It wasn't even like headline news, it was, you know, not thinking it's even going to come here. No, yeah, exactly. There was, yeah, zero travel advisor. There wasn't even yeah, travel yeah. advisories <laughs> at yeah. all. The, the, they didn't send any out until the government started announcing for people to come home. Right. Um, but yeah, it was just on the news, just following, like whenever hopping on Twitter, or just keeping yeah. up with what was going on, you'd see the odd thing about it. But yeah, it, uh, it happened very quickly, though. Yeah. So when did you start becoming concerned? Like when did it did it, like you said, it kind of happened so fast. Was there a moment where all of a sudden, like it just like you're like started panicking and having to search or did it, was it you, you kind of had time like, okay, let's, let's go try this. Let's try this before it started getting out of hand. It started like, we definitely started seeing more sign, like uh, whether notices uh, or just like alerts about it um, probably around early March. Um, and that was when we started kind of noticing something was up. Like this was bigger than just, um, you know, this is a bigger deal than we realized, even if it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of cases in South America, but the day when stuff really started picking up quickly was definitely the day they announced it was a pandemic, uh, when Wu announced that. Um, so that was that day we were in Bolivia, actually, we were right on the border town of Bolivia and Peru. And we knew right then that like, that was when stuff kind of started getting a bit concerning and we started thinking maybe the trip was going to have to get cut short because um, stuff was getting way more serious. And we were especially concerned because since it was declared a pandemic that day, it was the day we were crossing the border from Bolivia into Peru. And we really just didn't want to be caught in Bolivia in case they closed their borders. Um, just a bit of backstory on like the, in Bolivia, they had what was essentially a coup in October and they were planning to have another election in May. But based on what was happening, it looked very likely like that election was not going to happen. And um, 
it was just kind of uncertain what could happen in the in the country with that going on so anyways that was when stuff started getting a bit more stressful and we were able to cross and it was okay but it was that wasn't again another um we again realized that stuff was getting more serious because we'd crossed the border between peru and bolivia probably about two weeks earlier and it was fine there was nothing to it you know just hand your passports everything was fine but this time crossing back there were guys in hazmat suits who were taking everybody's temperature before they crossed and even there was one uh, i think it was american guy with us who had a sunburn on his forehead and he got like taken aside because his temperature was registering too high Mm -hmm. um so that was when we started realizing stuff was getting serious and we started truly realizing we're probably gonna have to cut the trip shorter than we expected right so I mean, that's the second time you referenced that, like, you're just like, okay, well, I guess we're going to have to go home soon. Mm -hmm. So you, so you got into Peru um, right after that. So what was kind of like the next part of that? Because right when they announced it as a pandemic, I think it only took took a couple days before, like, you know, I was working at home, Mm -hmm. Uh, like that, that happened very rapidly. So what happened as soon as you got to Peru and to the point where you started to try to actually like book your travel home? The next two days kind of went more or less as normal because we just felt like as like ridiculous as it sounds, just Peru felt safe enough that like we probably thought we'd at least have a couple weeks there, you know, to get out. Mm -hmm. Um, There wasn't that there really wasn't many cases like everything was going kind of as normal. So the first two days were in Peru were kind of okay. Like I think the 13th, the 14th and 15th. And then the 15th was the day that Trudeau announced that Canadians abroad should come home. And once we heard that, we were, we realized, okay, like this is, we probably should look into this, but, and we started, um, we talked to Nicole's mom, she was a nurse. So we just kind of asked her what her opinion was on all this. And she was even saying, yeah, like you, like maybe give it a day or two and see about maybe coming home, uh, like the following Sunday or something. Mm. And we still thought we at least had a week to leave. Um, and then, but on that day within probably about two hours after even having that phone call was when the Peruvian, the president of Peru um, declared a state of emergency and declared that he was closing all borders by midnight the next day. So we did not have a week. We only had about um, 24 hours to try and get out. Um, Yeah. Wow. So what was that, what was that experience like when you got that announcement from the Peru uh, president? Um, Did you like have to go like right to the airport? Were you trying to make calls? Like what was kind of, how, how were you trying to get out of there as quickly as possible? Cause I'm sure everything was just like jammed. Yeah, it was, uh, it was a crazy moment. See, the thing was, this is, and this is what I guess annoyed us was we didn't, the only reason we knew that the Peruvian president had made this, it was clear something was going on because there was um, just people were moving around our hostel. Things felt a bit weird for sure. But the only reason we even learned that the Peruvian president had declared this was because this bus company we were registered with sent out an email alerting us of it and saying they were going to run an emergency service of sorry for background we were in this town called paracas which was about four hours from lima so this bus company announced that they were going to run an emergency bus from that town in paracas to the lima airport um they sent this email out at 10 10 p.m and they said the bus would be there at 10 45 and just to get your stuff and just be ready um so we just immediately grabbed like ran to our rooms got our stuff all packed up uh, went out to this bus stop and waited for that bus to come in. The thing that annoyed us was that we didn't even hear this from like the embassy firsthand. Like when we'd been registered with them for months in advance and the fact that they weren't the ones that informed us that it was this bus company that just luckily was taking care of their clients. Um, so anyways, yeah, we hopped on that bus and it, uh, it was, yeah, 1045 PM. It got us to the airport for 3:30 30 AM, uh, that, that day. So 
I mean, that game, 35 minutes to get your, get your stuff yeah. and get on this bus mm-hmm. was like to get people get left behind where there are other buses. Like I'm just I've, picturing I, like this end of, you know, mm-hmm. pe- apocalyptic scenario where people are fighting over this bus to, to yeah. get out. Luckily there is enough space for all of us on okay. it, but I'm sure there are a lot of people in that town that would have yeah been left behind who just didn't like, we were just lucky. We were constantly, we were glued to our phones that day because we yeah. could tell something was up. Um, like if we'd been out at a bar or something, like it would have been very easy to be trapped there. And that like, it was a small town. Like I don't, I didn't, we didn't even see a grocery store there. So I don't know what the situation would have been like for, uh, to be stuck in a place like that. And there were a lot of people who were stuck in towns like right. that. But yeah, it was, it was just lucky. <laughs> yeah. Were you, so you were, were you around like people from like other countries at all? Yeah. There's a lot of people from other countries and there's quite a few people from Canada actually who were on that bus and who were at our hostel who, um, yeah. So there was, yeah, pretty, it was a pretty diverse group. Like this bus we were on was mainly, it was like a hop on hop off bus. So it was mainly almost entirely all international people. So, right. yeah. so what were, I'm trying to pick like, so they were getting information. Were they getting information from their government? Cause you mentioned like you didn't hear from your embassy, like our embassy, Canada, w- mm-hmm. were they getting information related to them? Were they hearing different things from their governments? And like, you guys had to like form this little community and like try to piece together this puzzle of what's happening. Um, yeah, some of them were the only ones I know for sure was the Irish embassy was keeping in pretty good touch, which was pretty crazy. Cause their embassy isn't even in Peru. It was in <laughs> Santiago, Chile um but yeah for the most part it was a lot of just rumor mills and like nobody really knew totally what was happening there were people like the bus was great like there was like a girl sitting behind us on the bus who was just crying the entire time like people were like panicking for the most part about mm. how they needed to get out and like they because they just had no idea what was gonna happen like it was all we knew was we heard it was gonna be martial law the guy who was leading the bus he at least talked to us a bit and told us what the situation was and that there would be soldiers in the street and you wouldn't be allowed to leave your place unless you um were going to the grocery store so he gave us like some of the details there but yeah for the most part it was everybody was just kind of nobody really knew fully what was happening all they knew is that they wanted to get out of there as quick as possible right so just like this completely surreal experience like going on around you yeah oh yeah yeah was there like adrenaline like were you like was this kind of like like this experience of like i don't want to like put it as dramatic as life or death but you know what i mean like where you're just like thinking on your on your toes just doing all these quick movements like what's going through your mind and like take us through a bit of your emotion through that oh it was yeah definitely adrenaline but it was kind of an annoying type of adrenaline because it was still a four-hour bus ride so and it was so late at night so i just couldn't sleep so you're just sitting there but um we kept busy because we were since we were heading to the airport and we didn't have anything booked we got a hold of nicole's sister and my sister um and we're trying to get them to just try it because we all we had for wi-fi was the bus's spotty wi-fi which was not working very well so we're just kind of desperately trying to get a flight pretty much anywhere like since they were closing their borders it was if there was a flight to the uk we would take it or a flight to miami we would take it or even brazil because they still had their borders open so we were just kind of desperately staying on the phone with them trying to look stuff up our the wi-fi kept kicking out and kicking us out and anyways there was nothing available though that whole time and we weren't able to sleep and we're just like honestly like just yeah things just going through our head is what to what to do next um it was never it luckily never hit the point it never hit the point of desperation or panic really Mm -hmm. like kind of always kept our heads straight enough and that we were like um 
like it was obviously scary. There was a lot of unknown happening, but all we could really focus on was the one thing ahead of us, which was try to book a flight and try and find a flight out. And then if you couldn't get a flight out, then it was, we'll focus on that after. So we were able to keep relatively calm from that, but we were not able to sleep at all on this midnight yeah. bus. Um, so this is where I kind of started picking up your story because I, I saw you were getting some, some media surrounding it. So I know I saw a piece um, in the citizen and, and you used to work there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Were you calling like the, the newspaper people or were they just kind of tracking like your old colleagues or were they just kind of tracking your Twitter feed being like, yo, Luke, what's going on? Yeah, it was my one, my one colleague, she saw me cause we were tweeting. We were just frustrated with the embassy, I think at this mm-hmm. point. So we were tweeting at the embassy. Why? And I think at that point we'd probably been at the airport for like eight or nine hours and we still hadn't even gotten an alert from the embassy about what was happening. Um, so we, I think we were tweeting at the ambassador asking like, why are there no details? And then one of my coworkers just saw that and, uh, she reached out because right. she was interested in writing the story. And I was, I, I was, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely interested in it. Hoping it would, you know, try and spurn some action from the, from the embassy. And, uh, yeah, so that was, that was how that happened. Right. So yeah, this is, so this is when I started seeing, um, a little bit what you're going through, through this story. So I read that you, like when you were trying to book the flight so you got to the airport finally and you're mm-hmm. trying to book to the flight the flight that it was like something like flights were like five thousand dollars or something yeah it was and it wasn't even there was i think it was somewhere between a three or five thousand dollar flight um from yeah lima peru to mexico city and like at that point we're not even like halfway home and like who knows if mexico is gonna was gonna close its borders in the next two hours or something so it was yeah, it was just ridiculous. It was, it was, there was no chance of getting out and um, yeah, flights were just skyrocketing. <laughs> wow. What is it about Peru? I don't know if you know the answer to this, but you know, reading your saga and then, you know, watching the news and, and have a, a couple other people being interviewed, whether it was CTV or CBC, that they were all kind of talking about Peru. What is it about Peru that was this, the central hub for trying to get people out? Or was that also going on in, in other parts of South America, if, if you know? I think it was happening to smaller degrees in other parts okay. of South America. I think the thing with Peru, um, they just launched such a like quick um, closure of their borders, like just 24 hours and it was shut. Um, on top of that, I think it's just, it's probably, probably the largest, like, again, this isn't based on any evidence, but it's just based on what I, my experience, I think it probably is the biggest tourist hub um, in South America for at least North Americans, just because Machu Picchu. Um, so I think it just happened to have a larger number of Canadians and um, here who are stranded and probably Americans as well. Um, I have heard other stories of people being stranded in like Ecuador, um, at Colombia. Um, but I think because of just the the high degree of tourist it, tourism it attracts, I think that's what led this situation to be so, so big and that many um, people trapped here. Um, yeah, that's that's probably okay. that's, that's my theory on it. Um, so you obviously didn't get the five thousand dollar flight. No. Yeah. How did you? So we did they basically tell you like this is it or like if you can't take this like sorry we'll we'll figure it out or you have to figure it out after this. What was kind of the next step after the, after that flight sequence? Well, we those flights we found online just looking up okay. anything. And the thing is, we don't even know if they like this. They had some other flights you could buy. Um, but they all involved flying through Colombia or Ecuador, which had also closed its borders. So they weren't even allowing people on the plane who weren't from those countries. 
So they were, which was crazy that they were even available. Mm. So anyways, yeah, so there was nothing available online. And then we waited in line for nine hours. Like we didn't even get to the, to talk to a guest or a desk agent until I think it might've been like one o'clock that, that afternoon. And we've been there since 3.30 AM. And once we got there, it was she, the woman just told us there were no flights, no flights going out basically anywhere. Um, so there was nothing available. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we kind of knew that was happening because we'd been hearing rumblings and people were telling us, yeah, we tried and we got nothing, but we were just like, we just decided we were at the airport. So we at least had to try, like we just had to ask. Um, so anyways, once we heard that we weren't surprised or really disappointed, we were kind of just expecting that. Um, but it was still, like, it, it felt like a big waste of time waiting for nine hours in line just to yeah. be told there was nothing available. So did you have to go find a hotel, uh, a hostel? Like, were you worried about being basically like on the street? Like, how did you navigate that? Because I'm sure, you know, in the midst of the, the borders closing down in the country, going into martial law that uh, basically like probably everyone's freaking out uh, if, if I'm imagining it. But how, like, what was the, like, the next, how do you keep a level head to find out what next to do? I, we were definitely worried about being potentially out on the street. The thing was, though, we because we tried booking a, ho- a hostel earlier that had said it would not lo- it would no longer be operating during the quarantine period. Mm. We'd found another one, and they had even emailed to just ask if we were aware of the situation with the quarantine. So that basically meant they were going to be open. So we were relieved at that. We knew we at least had some place to go to. Um, but the thing once we get we didn't know how long we'd be there though. Cause I was also worried they might close down during that quarantine period. And they did end up closing down earlier than I realized. So we um, took a cab back into the city um, with some people we were waiting in line with. And when we got to the hostel, we talked to them and they said, uh, we just asked if they'd be open for the two weeks. Cause we knew we were trapped for what we thought would at least be two weeks. And they told us um, they weren't sure, but they had a different location and that if they did close down, there should be a room available at this other location, which didn't install a ton of confidence, but mm-hmm. it was what we had. So went to our room and probably about two hours later, um, the desk, the office manager came up and said, hey guys, unfortunately, we're closing down as a result of the quarantine. Um, and unfortunately, there's no private rooms at this other hostel, but there is like these dorms that are available. And so me and Nicole were like, not staying in a dorm during a or pandemic you know yeah no that uh we looked up some private like some airbnbs and some private apartments yeah and luckily i don't even know how we got this lucky we got just like a gorgeous apartment in this really nice area of town um and we were able to go there and they were yeah they were going to be up and running and um yeah we got really lucky so we had a good place to stay for the the weeks we were there right so explain to people what being in peru was like during this martial law because I, I you know a lot of people right now and and I always say um, all feelings are justified like I know myself was having a really rough time adjusting to this social physical distancing that, that our government's pushing mm-hmm. but I always thought you know there's other countries you hear about Wuhan China or um, mm-hmm. Taiwan that were like cracking down like people are not allowed to leave mm-hmm. what was that like being in that situation like how much more you know stringent was it there 
Oh yeah. It was, um, it's like night and day. I mean, not like I've been in quarantine since I've gotten back here, but from what I've heard from what I saw from my friends while I was there, um, it was basically, we, they had like soldiers out on the street and police out like with, with guns, um, ensuring that we could not like that people could not leave unless they were going to the grocery store or to the pharmacy. Um, they had, yeah, it was, it was a full martial law shutdown. So, and the thing was the, the rules were changing every day. Like they were, they were putting in mandatory um, curfews as well. Um, so you couldn't leave the apartment between the hours of 8 PM and 5 AM the next day. And I've heard they've actually just today even extended it to make it like 6 PM to 5 AM the next day. Um, our area was okay though. We were in a very nice area of town and there was a grocery store and a pharmacy directly beside us. So, uh, there is not too much security around our area, but the day we left when we were driving through town, you saw full on like full soldiers out on the streets with like, with their weapons basically. And there was plenty of stories of people being arrested. Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> um, people being fully arrested for, um, for like breaking this, uh, this mandatory quarantine, whether it was they were walking their dogs too long or they were like using uh, the opportunity to go around the block from the grocery store to try and get a few extra few extra yards in. Um, oh but the craziest part about it was just hearing, because we're in this Facebook group about with Canadians who were lost, trapped in Peru. And they were, there were some stories going around about how people at certain hostels were just not allowed to even leave their room, let alone the actual hostel. Like there were full on guards outside their doors, making sure they didn't because they um, just worried since they'd been around each other, like in the dorms that they could have spread COVID-19. Um, so there was some pretty serious horror stories going on about that. Um, luckily our situation was not like that because we had an apartment we were able to leave to go get groceries when we needed to. But uh, you also didn't, we didn't leave unless we were getting groceries. There was no chance we were taking a chance on, um, taking a chance on, potentially getting getting you know arrested in a foreign yeah. country a martial law add everything else up on on top of what you're dealing with mm -hmm. um when did you start hearing from the embassy and like when did it start becoming apparent that you might be able to get home um so i think we we never really even heard from like a person at the embassy to be honest there was definitely there was a lot of automated emails that were coming through um, I honestly don't think stuff started happening until the media really started covering what was going on. That was when stuff felt like it started moving faster, which is probably about two or three days into being stuck there. Um, and that was, that was the thing. That was the thing that was annoying. And that was the thing like on a lot of the articles that we were in, a lot of the comments were like basically saying like, why now you're asking me, why are you asking the government for help? This is your fault. This is your responsibility or whatever. But the thing was the rule that the Peruvian government put in was that foreigners could leave, but the government needed to organize their departure. So we legitimately needed the government to do it. It wasn't that we were, you know, that we were just not taking any commercial flights out. There just were no commercial flights out. Right. Um, but yeah, once the media started covering it a lot more and it started getting bigger, um, that was when we started hearing from the government. It was probably two or three days in. Um, but stuff got pretty scary one day because the, uh, I think the foreign minister for the Peruvian government announced that they were no longer supporting repatriation of foreigners. Um, the rumor is because apparently one flight of Peruvians coming in might have had COVID-19. 
Um, so it was pretty concerning because it was we were we were thinking, okay, great, the government they waited too long, and now we missed our chance to even get out. Um, but luckily, they I guess they they negotiated something, and they said they'd still allow for um, citizens to be repatriated, but it just had to be through the airbase, not the airport. They fully closed down the airport. Um, but yeah, it was probably, we started hearing from them about three days, but we didn't honestly know if we were going to be getting out until about 24 hours before we got on the plane. Um, it just was, there was just so much uncertainty up until that time. We just, you had no idea when things were going to change, if the Korean government would change their mind again, if the Canadian government could even lock something down. Um, yeah, I was very unsure up until that moment. So what, what did you have to do to like register or like, did, you know, someone finally reply your tweet and be like, oh yeah, like email this thing or like, how are you getting the information to even know how to get out? There was a lot of the Facebook group helped a lot because okay. people would, people were calling and they were getting bits and tidbits of information and people had friends in certain places. The annoying thing there was nothing was verified. So you never knew what was just a rumor. It was the rumor mill, you know? Um, but there was like those automated emails were providing bits of information, not lots of it and not great details in them, but they'd be saying, we're working on flights. We don't know what day, um, we'll email you if anything updates. And then finally about, um, finally about 24 hours before, um, we started seeing in the Facebook group that they were sending out emails for flights with a specific code, um, that you had to put in the Air Canada website to book your flight out. Um, and yeah, that was about 24 hours before. And that, but that system for getting people out was just, I, in my opinion, just deeply, deeply flawed. Right. Um, in this time, so I know obviously with the isolation, you probably weren't around other countries, but I'm just trying to like get a perspective of, you know, what Canada was trying to do versus what, you know, Sweden or UK or America were trying to do for people. Was, did you get any of that information or was it just strictly pretty much like you just were talking to other Canadians in the same kind of predicament? Um, no, we talked to quite a few people from other countries and some, to be honest, like some were a lot better. Like um, is, Israeli citizens were out basically the next, the day after the, um, the Peruvian government announced the border closed down. Same with Mexico. Um, other countries were in a lot worse predicament from what I heard. Um, again, not don't have this verified, but I'm pretty sure Australia was not doing any repatriation, um, which makes, I guess, a bit of sense. Like that is very far. You'd have to cross the entire ocean for it. But um, if some people in Sweden, we heard they, their government, the EU was organizing like a single flight for just the vulnerable to get them back to Europe. Um, our friends in Ireland, they were saying that apparently they were organizing a chartered flight for uh, people just to London for $5,000. And um, from there, they'd have to just head over to Ireland. So they'd have to rent something. Or, um, so yeah, it sounded like it sounded like it was somewhere somewhere in the middle. Some countries were a lot hmm. worse off and other countries were a lot better and quicker. Um, yeah. So did you this flight that you ended up getting, like, was that, you had to pay for a seat on that or was that like supply as like from the government? Oh no. Yeah. We had to pay and we had to pay about around triple what the actual price would be. Um, See, that's interesting. Cause I was definitely under the impression like this was like kind of like a rescue mission and that the government mm -hmm. was coming in with the, the planes to get Canadians home. But like, really that's not the case. <laughs> it, it, no, it, yeah. But it isn't. It was still like a commercial endeavor, which I don't think a lot of people know. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it was, yeah, they, it was about $1,400, which um, just in comparison, 
our flight to Buenos Aires in January was about 500. So, mm-hmm. which is even further. Um, so yeah, it's around triple, triple, well, at least double the, the price of what it normally would be. Wow. So, you know, when you got word, it's like, okay, we can get home. You know, what, what was the process? You, now you know that like you had to run to the airport basically and sit and wait or you, so you enter this code in and then enter your information. Um, just like that last part of trying to get on that plane home. Uh, yeah. So the way, the way it worked is they, yeah, they sent this code out. They said they were going to send it to people who had um, like the vulnerable first. Hmm. Um, but the thing is the thing, the issue we had with it is the government was offering this, this loan, right? This $5,000, yeah, right. which we looked into just for the sake of it. Cause we had nothing else to do. And it was basically like, don't apply for it. If you have a credit card or if you have a family with money or so it was really like who who in this situation doesn't have you know one of those things like if yeah you're like if you traveled problem. you obviously yeah, have, exactly. to have a credit card you're gonna have a credit card um <laughs> so we thought the annoying the thing that irritated us is they they sent out this this email which has a code buried basically in the body of it um for me and nicole like we're we're young we our jobs involved working with technology so for us it was no problem figuring it out but there was a lot of elderly people there who were in more vulnerable situations who i'm sure probably had a hard time figuring their way around it, let alone booking a ticket on like an airline ticket on your phone is hard enough on its own, let alone adding in all these other complicated assets to it. So we kind of worry with that system that a lot of vulnerable people were left behind just because they could not figure out this way. So of booking the ticket and with this offer of this loan, I don't understand why the government wouldn't just send these vulnerable people their tickets and said, what, okay, pay, pay it back once you're home, you know, yeah, something like that. Especially if you don't have, there are families of five that had to drop like, you know, like $8,000 just to get home. Um, so I don't know why they couldn't have just done it that you could, you know, do it, pay it back once you're home. Right. Um, but yeah, once we booked the ticket, um, then they had, you had to walk or walk, you had to go to the embassy the next day. Um, we were able to walk there because we were quite close and then you just waited in line. And once we got to that point, it was actually very smooth. Uh, it was a long line of uh, obviously the 400 people who were waiting to get back. Um, but it moved quite quickly. You got on a bus, they took you to the air base, um, the Peruvian air force base. Uh, once we were there, we, um, had to get off the bus with our bags. We lined our bags up. We got our exit stamps and our, um, did our customs and they just had a, instead of having our bags scanned or anything, they just had a dog uh, sniff them all. Um, and then once we were done that, it was just back on the bus and then, uh, then onto the plane. Right. So I'm just going to go back just a little bit on, on that code aspect and the older people, mm-hmm. like was there a customer service line or something for, for these people where they really just kind of, it was kind of like fend for yourself in this situation yeah it was basically fun. and like oh again God. we from what we've read after like the other flights the, like the code like the flights have been sold out in minutes or something as soon as the codes go out they're just snatched up right away um yeah there was no real people would try calling to do some sort of customer service but by that point you're like out. after waiting i'm sure hours they everything be sold out so um yeah so, so you're are you still in those groups are there still people stuck there Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm still oh in it. God. And it sounds like it's for a lot of them, it's getting really, really worse and desperate because stuff's just changing every day. Um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, there's one group we know who I was in touch with. Um, they're trapped in this hostel in Cusco and the hot, somebody in the hostel tested positive to COVID 
So nobody's allowed to leave their room for, they can only leave their room for one hour a day. And they got a notice saying they're going to be quarantined there from one month to three months, um, which has just got to be terrifying for them. And they only have two, two options of food that the hostel provide, one vegetarian and one non-vegetarian. And uh, yeah, so it's sounding very, very bad and desperate for them. Jesus. Yeah, like uh, you're, they're basically in jail. Uh, yeah, yeah, essentially. Yeah, against um, their will. <laughs> when when you got back, I know you know I I'm I watch the news kind of every day while I'm I'm doing work and the when you people land in Canada they they seem to be very critical of the 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 security the, the the testing the monitoring all that once you arrive and then and then are able to go back home mm-hmm. has well, has it gotten any better from you know. Uh, maybe last week like what was your experience like were you kind of like wow this was like super easy breezy just in and out and got a pamphlet or did it did it get a lot lot more strict because you landed in toronto yeah yeah okay so was was it like what was like that process of getting home and being allowed to leave the airport like oh yeah it was pretty easy there wasn't really i didn't notice any testing um they did they asked us if we felt any symptoms but that was pretty much about the extent of it um i guess the thing is i the interesting thing i noticed flying into pearson there was it was just empty like it was just dead i think we were the only flight that was like landing that day um which was i was happy about because i heard the horror stories of just crowds of people and zero testing um so for us, yeah, it was luckily it was empty, but yeah, there was very, very little testing um, from what I noticed when we landed. Right. Um, so now basically you're home, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, you're in quarantine. Are you, yeah. are you and Nicole still together? Did you both have to go to like your own homes? Uh, we're, we're still together. Yeah. yeah. We're just doing it in the same home. <laughs> so um, if, if you don't mind me asking, feel free to avert the question, but um, I myself, like I'm a big mental health advocate. So what would you say like the toll of all this has taken on, on your mental health? Um, it was definitely for being in the situation. Um, it was definitely very stressful and very anxious. Like there's no denying that you just, you had no idea what was happening at any, any hour. We had no idea when we were getting out or if we were getting out, you had no idea what this situation was going to change to. Um, so that definitely takes a toll. Um, there's no denying, there's no denying that. Um, and on the both of us, um, like the other thing is like the craziest part about it is we're just so stressed about getting out of here that we're not even focused on the serious, the elephant in the room, which is a giant pandemic that's going on. Yeah. Like we don't even have time to focus on the anxiety of that. So then you're relieved once you're home, but then you, that hits you. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, that for sure takes a toll. I know for, a lot of people I uh, who are trapped in Peru, like some of those people who are stuck in the, the hostel in Cusco, I can't imagine they wouldn't experience some form of PTSD, yeah. um, you know, from what was supposed to just be a fun little uh, backpacking trip um, to have it turn into basically a prison sentence. I really can't imagine they wouldn't experience some long lasting um, issues to their mental health. Um, for us, again, we were just, we were so lucky to have such a nice apartment to stay in and we at least had each other and we, you know, we were able to keep, we had good friends who would reach out and stuff. So that kind of kept us grounded. But yeah, there's, despite all that, there's still, there's still lasting effects to the, just the stress of not knowing and being trapped in a foreign country that's under martial law. Um, yeah, it definitely does take its toll. Right. Um, 
you know, this is, this is the question and I wanted to ask, and um, I know you brought up, referenced it earlier, you know, when, when stories like this, and I'm, I'm sure you even got comments on it, um, were being posted, you know, it's, it's those people who are like, well, why'd you even leave? You know, again, this is your fault. Is it the government's responsibility to, to go back and, and get you? What, through this process has, you know, your opinion on all that, like, how is it kind of been formed? Um, for me, it's made me question what the role of a uh, embassy is right. uh, in a lot of ways. Um, that's the main thing it's had on me. Um, because I just feel like a lot, a lot of the situation could have been avoided. I don't know, had the embassy reached out maybe two days before and said, we've heard some things about the, the borders potentially crossing. Like even, even the Canadian government, they only announced the Canadians abroad should come home about 15, no, maybe 24 hours before Peru closed their borders. Like, I, I don't know anyone who's ever tried to buy a flight and, you know, 24 hours in advance, but it's, they're not affordable and there's hardly any available. Um, but yeah, that's, that's mainly what's, uh, this experience has shaped my opinion. Like, um, obviously I'm sure just directing a lot of my stress at something. And, uh, I guess that happens to be the government, but, um, I do feel like they do owe some responsibility to their, their citizens to keep them safe while they're abroad or at the very least just keep them informed so they can keep themselves safe. Right. Um, another question, like after all this, you know, when this is all said and done and, and what you and Nicole went through, mm-hmm. do you think you would still travel again? <laughs> yeah. That was the other thing I was going to add to the the mental health question is I wonder what this will do to, my um my anxiety while traveling yeah. but um i would like i would like to like obviously this is it's crazy that this happened my first ever backpacking trip a global pandemic hits like i don't know what the luck is there but yeah. um yeah i still would like like there is i still would like to i hope it doesn't taint my experience with traveling and i think the fact that we did you know get out of it relatively unscathed other than you know a bit of stress and anxiety um it hasn't ruined it for me, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, f- financially, like I'm not going to be able to travel for a while now. <laughs> right, that, right. Um, the amount I had to to pay in the end. But um, again, yeah, I think like psychologically, psychologically, I don't think it'll have a lasting impact on my enjoyment of travel. Um, but yeah, right. Now that you're you're home, are you still, you know? advocating on behalf maybe of the people who are, are still stuck or in that group who you know are are stranded somewhere like is there still sort of I guess a camaraderie for for you all that the people who did make it home you're still trying to fight still trying to get information out for for those people who are stuck or is it kind of like <laughs> I'm not trying to make this like you know frame the picture of you like either it's like you help or you're, you're gone because you're home no. but like is there still that sense for you that you know you still want to fight some of this battle to help the other people get home oh yeah for sure and i think that's kind of in agreement with almost everybody in that facebook group who did make it home um like i recently wrote a story for the toronto star on that situation in cusco with uh, the people who are trapped in the hostel um still tried to reach out to various you know mps to try and keep them alerted that there are still people stuck there um still tweeting at the ambassador um you know to try and to continue to get people out um 
yeah there's a kind of a common agreement like we're just the lucky ones who got out and like it's it does sound like it's getting a lot worse to the people who are still stuck there um because they also the government also did announce in peru that they it was supposed to initially be a two-week quarantine with the borders closed and they just extended it another two weeks so um like these people don't know when they're when they're getting out um there's no commercial flights to canada for the entire month of may and i think even june now so um yeah then uh basically yeah it's still just advocating um the other thing that like kind of pushed us to is um i understand why he would say it but trudeau saying that they're not going to be able to help everybody without providing any details just caused like a mass hysteria in that group because nobody wants to be the one who's left behind and nobody knows who's going to be left behind or um you know so it's it's created kind of a very panicky attitude within that Facebook group. So the only way to try and make sure that everybody gets out is to continue advocating while you're right. While you have the means to. Have you ever gotten a reply from an MP, like a meaningful reply from anyone uh, from the government or the embassy or on a tweet like that, like some sort of official, like helpful response? As, as bizarre as this is, Ryan, the one person who was honestly giving us the most dialogue on the situation was a conservative mp from calgary like i'm not from neither of us are from calgary he just happened to be somebody posted him into that we should reach out to him in the facebook group because i guess he was their mp and we just didn't really look it up we just did and he was the only one who gave us regular updates on what was happening on what he was trying to do which just felt so bizarre um we did hear from like i did did hear from my mp nicole did hear from her mp but they were usually pretty lackluster. Like they didn't include many details. <clears throat> um, they, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't anything really meaningful, but this one MP named Tom Kameek from Calgary, um, who isn't, he, I guess he was a for, a former foreign affairs minister or something. Um, he was the only one who gave us regular updates on what was happening and on um, <clears throat> that flights were being worked out and yeah, just, direct not not automated responses at least wow shout out to him <laughs> yeah yeah i know it's so bizarre <laughs> um so for now you know everyone who's hearing your story whether it's you know people you who've read the article or who you've mm -hmm. you've told or people brand new to this story is there mm -hmm. anything we can do um you know to help the situation of people who are who are still stuck abroad anything at all I think the best thing is just resharing their stories, um, whether it's, yeah, on social media. Um, like, I think that's the best way. As long as, like, the pressure is kept up on them, then they can't really leave the people behind, you know? Um, they, like, they, I've, I've seen, like, the Foreign Affairs Minister and the Ambassador have been sharing all these positive tweets of getting people out, um, which is great. They are getting people out, um, but it really isn't completed until everybody's out. So I guess the only way is to, yeah, I guess keep the story relevant because it's easy for stories do get old after a while, you know, people kind of get tired of hearing the same thing over and over again. But as long as it keeps getting, <clears throat> keeps getting written and keeps getting um, shared, then I think the, the government has to act to try and help everybody who's there. Right. Yeah. And you know, me and you being in the news business, me being in the, the media business, we both know how quickly the news cycle kind of turns over and how we all move on to something new and shiny and, now that people are starting to get home and and they're tweeting out these stories and things continue to evolve here that yeah those stories often get forgotten about unfortunately and then 
you know, if I didn't ask you, I would probably have no clue that people were still stuck there, which is a, kind of a real scary thing because that's just in one part of the world. Mm-hmm. That's totally. not even, that's not even, you know, the rest of everywhere else. So mm-hmm. it's definitely mm-hmm. kind of scary. Um, I mean, now that you're home, like, how are you guys feeling? Um, I, I no symptoms. Everything's, everything's good. You're just looking forward to being out of quarantine here soon. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, just going by day by day, very like just so relieved to be home for sure. Um, I, I think like, <laughs> I guess the biggest thing we're feeling back to the, back to the mental health question is I feel like there's some form of obviously much, not as serious, but some form of survival guilt, I guess, in a way of just feeling mm. guilty for the people who are still trapped there. Um, you know, um, but other than that, we've been doing all right, you know, keeping busy. Um, doing a lot of crosswords and puzzles and <laughs> watching Netflix, Tiger King, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah that's, yeah. yeah. that's something. That's the second craziest story and yeah. going yeah. on for sure. Um, uh, just uh, one final question for you. I, mm-hmm. I, I saw Nicole uh, had an article uh, of mindfulness um, mm-hmm. and, and they learned, is that something you guys really relied on to, to help get through this? Is there anything you you've learned about, about the practice that you didn't know before maybe that you you brought forward um yeah i guess the biggest thing um the biggest thing was just i guess breathing <laughs> to be honest like as as weird as that is to say um it's easy to get just overwhelmed by a situation but if you do just pause and kind of focus on that one thing you can control it kind of makes things the situation slow down a bit Um, and once you do that, you can kind of focus on your problems one at a time. Um, just kind of like we did, whether it was focusing, all right, we need to see if we can try and get a flight out. We can't get a flight out. Okay. Let's see if we can get a hotel. Um, we got a hotel We're we got a hotel for the next two weeks. So we're going to be okay here. Now let's focus on trying to get a hold of the embassy to see if we can get out of here. And once you did kind of slow it down like that, then the problem became very manageable. Um, as opposed to an overwhelming situation, which involved you being trapped in a foreign country, relying on your government to negotiate your exit. Um, yeah, it just became much more, much more simple that way. Right. Well, listen, man, um, I appreciate you sharing the story because I know, um, I know you're trying to advocate, but I know it also can't be easy trying to relive some of the the details and, and everything. Um, so I really do appreciate it. And I'm glad you and Nicole are both home safe and, and, uh, happy to get the story out to hopefully try to get more people home. Um, are there any last final words? I usually like to give people a plug or anything. I don't know if you're writing articles now and you're resuming kind of some work um, for people to go check out or any articles that you're doing. Um, yeah, well, uh, nothing, nothing new just yet other than that recent one on um, the situation in Cusco. If people want to go read that. It's on the Toronto star uh, website. Um, but yeah, just uh, I appreciate you taking the time, Ryan, to uh, share the story and um, for following it so so diligently. Yeah, listen, man, um, continued good health to both of you. And uh, I don't know, maybe uh, down the road, we'll bump into each other again. Yeah, that sounds good. That's <laughs> okay. All right. Bye, everybody. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes.